Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals. All thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today, we're joined by a four-time Olympic gold medalist, a four-time world champion, and a world record holder. Kate Campbell is a giant of Australian swimming, and at her fourth Games, Tokyo 2020, she had the honour of being a flag bearer at the opening ceremony before claiming two golds and a bronze in the pool. Kate, hello, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, here we are, life after Tokyo. What what an event for the world. What a games for you. The last three or, three or so months, has this been a chance for you to, I guess, finally sit still and just absorb your own thoughts? Yeah, I'm calling this time my self-funded long service sleep. <laughs> so I really, I haven't done any formal exercise or any formal training. The last time I was in a swimming pool was in Tokyo at the Olympic pool. I still enjoy swimming and, and I get down to the beach as often as possible, but I have really enjoyed taking a little bit of time to do things that are completely outside of my usual comfort zone. So you've been swimming, but you've been racing for about half your life competitively. So I know you've had some forced absences. Is this the longest break you've had by choice? Yeah, this is this is the, the longest break that I have ever taken uh, since I was nine years old. You know, uh, I even I decided to not compete for Australia in 2017. But I think I was even after Rio, I, w- I was back in the pool with well within three months uh, just because I, I needed something to do. But uh, I'm finding lots of other things to fill my time uh, at the moment. So I'm just really in, enjoying the break and then I'll figure out what life looks like in the future. Yeah. So I was going to ask you why the long layoff then? Has it been a time, Kate, for reflection or a time spent considering what comes next? I think it's been a little bit of both, really. Uh And also, I feel like time doesn't really mean anything anymore right now. Uh, I'm having trouble differentiating uh, the months from each other, the years from each other. Uh, I feel like we've been stuck in this time warp for a really long time. And so I also just cannot believe that it's been three months. And so I I think that I have been able to reflect on it, but then I've also been able to start to put together a little bit of a rough plan for the future and, and try some different challenges, right? I've, I've been a swimmer my whole life, you know, my, and my whole adult life. So I've been really trying to see what I can do outside of the swimming pool because I know that eventually a transition will, will have to happen and I don't know many other jobs that uh, have staring at a black line for four hours a day, like, on the top of that skill set list. So I'm trying to build a few other skills. <laughs> Fair enough too. If I can be direct in asking you, does that rough plan for the future, have you scribbled down Paris 24 on there yet? It's in pencil. Right. <laughs> is the, is, the pencil. Er, is the eraser close by or it's back in the jar over in the corner? No, no, no. I, I, I haven't reached for the eraser. I haven't felt like I needed to reach for the eraser to, to get rid of it. Uh, but I, I do want to make sure that if I do go on to, to Paris, that it's because I love the sport and not because I'm afraid that I can't do anything else. I think that fear can only motivate you so much. And to really excel and, and to be at the best 
in the world, you you have to do it for love and and make sure that it's a real passion of yours. So mm. I'm I'm taking this time, and they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and I will definitely say that's true. Uh, there are a few. Uh, competitions going around in Europe at the moment and uh, immediately after the the games I was like no I'm so glad I'm not doing that but now I'm looking at them being like oh yeah okay that looks pretty good yeah okay <laughs> well that's a sign that's a sign I guess well, don't we we speak of our cups being full don't we and, and I guess I wanted to ask you what level of satisfaction resides in you now you know 29 years of age four Olympics as we mentioned you've been a world champion a Commonwealth Games gold medalist world record holder. the list goes on but within, are you at peace within with everything at the moment? Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question because I think that my whole life I've spent chasing the impossible and, and that is ultimately chasing perfection, right? And perfection doesn't exist anywhere and I think that's why I keep going after it because it keeps me motivated. So it's it's been really interesting, I think, also in the past 18 months because they've been even more imperfect than life usually is. So having to find sort of little joys in in the imperfection and a level of acceptance of chaos, which I'm I'm not very good at. So <laughs> I I think that yeah, I, I can I can now look look back over my career and be really proud of of, of everything that I've achieved. But I also I also don't like looking back too much because it feels like I'm resting on my laurels and, and I usually have my sights set forward uh, and, and a next challenge. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's been a little bit strange this time because I don't have that really clear set path and it mm. has made me look backwards. And I've actually really enjoyed it. Turns out that I've climbed a pretty high mountain and, and the view is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. So going into Tokyo, I suppose you might have been seen as someone who, in some quarters anyway, had some perhaps unfinished business, I guess specifically in the individual sense. So to get that 100-metre bronze, what, what, 13 years after your last and only individual medal, also a bronze as a 15-year-old, I mean, you're you're a kid then. This one was pretty emotional, wasn't it, on the pool deck in Japan? Yeah, it really, really was. And there were so, so many reasons uh, behind it. And I think that what I the, the fear that I labored under for, for so long after Rio and, and not performing it as well as I wanted to in that race was that I was someone who couldn't stand up and deliver in high pressure situations. And normally I'm I'm pretty good with that. Uh, when when I need to stand up in the heat of the moment, I can usually bring my A game. And not being able to do that in 2016 really shook me to my core and it, it really made me go back and, and want to reevaluate who I was and, and, and what I valued in myself because something that I thought that I was really good at, I, I wasn't able to do. And I going into these games, uh, there were so, so many challenges that, that I had to overcome just to get there. And when I got there, I was very clear that my goal heading into that race was best execution. So I wanted to execute as near perfect a race as I could. And I had to accept that that may not look like a gold medal, right? And that wasn't a a realization or or an acceptance that I had pre Rio. You know, I I was, I was afraid of, of, of what, uh, success would look like if it wasn't a gold medal. Whereas this time I, I took the emphasis out of the outcome and, and put it on the process. And, you know, there's a whole heap of sports psychology that tells you why that's really important. But I, it was it was actually a really beautiful moment uh, at, at the end of the race. I, I touched the wall and I knew that I had achieved what I set out to do. I knew that I had executed every stroke of the race as well as I should have but I also knew that I hadn't won right because I was next to Emma McKeon Mm. who did end up winning and I could see that she was you know uh, an arm's length in front of me so I knew that I hadn't won and I knew that I hadn't achieved that elusive gold medal but I had this kind of two seconds of calm before I turned around and looked at the scoreboard because I knew that no matter what number was next to my name, I had gone out and achieved what I hadn't managed to achieve in Rio. 
And then I saw a number three next to my name. And then I saw that Emma had done really well. And then the emotions just took over. And I think I cried pretty much for the next half an hour. Um, I haven't gone back and looked at any of those interviews because I was like, oh, man, I was just an emotional wreck. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, I think you held it in check relatively well. Not that anyone would have blamed you if you did let it all spill out. I thought you kept it pretty well under wrap. I mean, your first words to Emma were profound. I, I'm so proud of you. And they were immediate words as well. Yeah, and and I was, you know, I think that that Emma has been the most underrated swimmer for the past five years. She consistently stands up and delivers uh, such high level. She consistently has such full programs. And, you know, this was her first individual gold medal on a, a world stage, and she managed to do it at an Olympic game. She managed to... Uh, break the the Commonwealth record and the Olympic record, and I've I've been a, a part of her journey for many many years, and to see her be able to stand up and deliver that was pretty special. Yeah, and I guess I wanted to ask Tokyo, as you touched on, might not have been the coronation moment that you perhaps expected in in Rio when you were the favourite, but after all the water that had gone under the bridge, obviously not just since then, but before then, everything that had gone into it, obviously a long career in the sport. I mean, what? maybe this was the next best thing. Oh, to be honest, I felt like I had won gold. Yeah. I honestly felt like I had won gold. And I think that, that Paddy Mills called uh, the Boomers bronze medal his rose gold. And I have taken that and I've run with it. Yeah. Uh, most most times when, when I'm showing my medals around, because I'm pretty much at the moment in the, in the months after an Olympics, I'm just like a grade fiver. I just do show and tell wherever I go. Um, and so whenever I, I take out the medals, everyone is obsessed with, with those gold medals and they want to hold them and, and they want to show them off. And it's that bronze medal that holds just such a special place in my heart. I mean, I'm obviously incredibly proud of, of those gold medals as well, and, and they each have their own different story attached to it. But I, I look so fondly at, at that little matte gold, rose gold uh, bronze medal that I have. Magnificent. And we'll, we'll touch on Rio a little bit later on a bit more, but, I mean, you, you're human, obviously. You've done so well to, I guess, compartmentalise Rio in the, in the years since leading up to Tokyo, but I think you admitted in the when you woke up on the day of the 100 in in Tokyo, that perhaps there were some demons knocking on the door. I mean, how did you keep them at arm's length in the hours and those final hours after all those years before the 100 in Tokyo? Yeah, I think that life experiences or or, or demons or, or, um, you know, bad memories, they live within us, right? And they stay within us and they become a part of us. And no one who, who has gone through something that is difficult ever forgets about it or or it, it never goes away, right? You just learn to deal with it or process it or harness it or use it. And I think that the way that I used my Rio experience was when I stood behind the blocks, I was in a fear state. I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't win. I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't deliver, if I choked, if I didn't live up to everyone's expectations and my own expectations. And for a sports person, that is our biggest fear. Mm. Uh, and, and we fail on a really public stage. And that happened. So literally my worst fear standing behind the blocks happened. And I was like, I, I remember afterwards, I was like, oh, is this it? Like, this is, this is what I've been afraid of. And you know what? You just had to keep going. And so I think that when I woke up in Tokyo, I had this profound sense of calm because I knew that I'd already faced the worst. You know, I'd already done that. Yeah. And so I could go out and I could stand behind the blocks and say, you know what? Do your worst. Come at me. I've already been through this. I'm going to show you what I've got. And I used a, a negative experience and, and used it to comfort me in a way to say that, yeah, I've, I've been through something that's really scary and I've come out the other side. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, well, we're going to go back to where it all started for Kate Campbell, southeastern Africa and the country of Malawi. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, and it's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting with four-time Olympic swimmer Kate Campbell. Kate, Malawi, I was looking up, sometimes referred to as the warm heart of Africa, such as the friendliness of its people. So you're born there in 92, the oldest of five kids to South African parents, Jenny and Eric. Sitting here now, what memories do you hold of your first nine years there in Malawi? Oh, I have such fond memories of my time in Africa. Uh, There's this wild freedom that comes with being a child in Africa because rules are more like guidelines, right? (laughs) Occupational health and safety, not really a thing. So all those things that uh, kids really find very restrictive uh, are just non-existent. And you don't notice the inconveniences in life. You don't notice the poverty as much because it's just, it, it, it's the soup that you've been swimming in your whole life. And I, you know, can we, we were homeschooled. And so I remember we'd do lessons in the morning and then we'd just have hours of play in the afternoon. We would, uh, my dad used to sail catamarans a, a lot. That, that used to be his hobby. And so we used to go down to uh, Lake Malawi, which is like this massive lake that takes up a third of the country. Uh, we used to go there often on the weekends and he would go out sailing and, and we would swim in, in the lake shores or, uh, you know, we would go game spotting. So definitely wouldn't pass the, the, the regulations now, but we used to sit on like the roof rack of, of our big four wheel drive with big spotlights at night and, and shine it around and, and try and spot game uh, in, in the local national park. So yeah, I, I have such incredible fond memories of it, but I think that the contrast of when, when I moved to Australia, I realized uh, how, uh, privileged we, we were in Africa um, because the, the 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 standard of living in Australia was so high for for everyone, right? It, it wasn't just a select few. And what about so no bad memories? What about is it the quinine that you've got to drink there for the malaria? I think your sister had a hard time. A couple of your siblings had a hard time with that. That was not not too nice on the palate, is it? Oh yeah. Well, look when when you live there, um, we don't worry about taking malaria prevention medication. We just worry about when we get malaria. But awesome. yeah, it was um, my, my my sister and my mum actually had uh, a, a really my, my sister Bronte and, and mum Jenny had a, a very very bad scare with with malaria and nearly died uh it was just lucky that that we had a, a friend who was uh, a doctor and a nurse and she pretty much moved into the house and, and had them on drips at home and uh you know I, how old was i i would have been maybe five at the time mm. uh five or six and i was just stoked because mum just spent the whole day sleeping and dad was worrying about them so i got to go to my friend's house for a sleepover for three days in a row <laughs> uh it's only now that i realized just how sick they were uh, and, and how lucky we still are to have them. And Lake Malawi, beautiful place. But what what about the hippos and the crocs? And you're swimming in there? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're all of those things. But like <laughs> I said, the uh, life is uh, yeah. a lot more wild and probably a lot cheaper in Africa, um, for better or for worse. So we would, were kind of aware that, that they were crocodiles and hippos. Uh, there was one instance where a hippo popped up like, you know, within 50 metres of, of where we were swimming. And, yeah, I don't think I've ever swum back to a boat faster. Like, I probably broke the world record as, a, as an eight-year-old because the, the scrambling to get out, there was a, a, another story of um, we, we were out fishing with Dad. So my, my poor father, he had four daughters um, and, and first three daughters before he got a son. So he was out taking his three daughters fishing which I'm sure that any fathers listening just knows what an annoying time that is. That's not fishing. You're just baiting your kids. Hooks <laughs> yeah, that's right. For them. That, that's all he was doing. Anyway, um, the, the motor on our tinny broke. So dad had to <laughs> swim us back, like pull us back in the boat, holding a knife in between his teeth because there were crocodiles nearby. Crocodile Dundee um, style. Oh, and, and as, and as he was swimming, um, 
uh, as he was swimming, we saw a crocodile like swim into the water and right on cue, the three of us girls just started screaming, just crying for dad to get back in the boat. So, but you know what? We all made it out all right. Um, and we've just got some really good, fun stories to tell. So your dad, Eric, is an accountant. Your mum, Jenny, was a nurse. And you were there because of of Eric's work, KPMG, I think. Is that why the, your mum and dad moved there? Yeah, yeah. Kind of on, on a whim. They, they got married, went travelling for a year, came back to South Africa and were like, oh, we don't really feel like settling down. We, we want to continue the abroad adventures. And so on a whim, uh, there was a three-year contract in Malawi for, for dad, who is an accountant. He is the least accountant accountant that I know, just as an FYI. But you've just described uh, him. He doesn't sound very accountish like. Does not sound very accountant does he? Uh, although very handy to have one in the family. Yeah, Thank right. you for helping me with my tax debt. Uh, so, yeah, they, they moved to Malawi and the three-year contract turned into 10 years and, you know, nearly five kids because mum was pregnant when we moved out to Australia in 2001. And you were introduced to the water at a very young age. Jenny was a pretty handy synchro swimmer, wasn't she? Yeah, swimming really runs in the family. So Jenny, my mum, was a synchronised swimmer for South Africa. So she was good enough to make the the South African national team. So she could have competed at a world championships or an Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games, but it was during apartheid. So South Africa was banned from all international competition. So she she never got that opportunity. Uh, and her mum, so my, my grandma on that, on that side, is a swim teacher and used to run swim classes out of her pool in her backyard. So, yeah, we just kind of really didn't have a choice. We were born into this really swimming family and mum taught us how to swim. It was part of our homeschool curriculum. And, you know, she used to take us for, for lessons in the backyard pool and, um, you know, host lessons for, for a whole heap of other expat families. Jeez, your mum sounds incredible, just some of the reading I've been doing on her. Now, your younger brother Hamish has cerebral palsy, of course, which is a obviously an ongoing battle. And your mum has been, I get, well, has to have been his full-time carer, which is a huge job. I mean, can you describe, it's going to be hard to put into words, your, your love for Hamish and perhaps the inspiration that he provides you in his own special way and has done over the years? Yeah, so my brother Hamish had cerebral palsy and it was due to a traumatic brain injury at birth. So he was a stillborn and they've managed to revive him, and uh, but that's left him with, with uh, severe brain damage. So he is 23 this year, but he probably only operates at, at the level of maybe a one or a one-and-a-half-year-old. So uh, requires full-time care. And, and then on top of that, he has very has developed in the past couple of years um, very severe uh, medical complications as well. So he really does require full-time care. And I think that right from the beginning, uh, even when we were unsure of the level or the severity of his disability, my parents were really good at making sure that we loved and valued Hamish as a whole person for who he is, not for, we never, we never wished that he could be someone else or, or do other things. It was just whatever he was and whatever he um, could accomplish, whether that was, uh, you know, learning what water is and and so he knows when to take a drink or whatever it is, we were celebrating him as a whole person. And I think that's really important uh, when when we are talking about disability is that so often, and and my parents were were really good about this, they they never looked at, at Hamish and I think that internally they, they might have wished for a different life for him, but us as children never, never felt that. He was always this whole complete person for us to love and a really integral part of our family throughout it all. We obviously, you know, helped care for him and, and life looked a little bit different uh, before he, he came along. Uh, my parents used to camp a lot, but camping with a wheelchair and, and a son who's severely disabled uh, isn't really easy. So, you know, we, we haven't camped in a long time. And, and now when we go out, we need to make sure that we go to places that are wheelchair accessible and, and things mm. like that. But it's it's never seen as a drag because Hamish is such an integral part and adds, we see that he adds so much value to our family. Yeah, that's nice. I'd, I'd imagine anyway, Kate, I mean, there's so much so much courage needed here and displayed in these situations, not just from Hamish, but from you know, the people looking after him, his carers, you, the wider family in these situations and over the years as well. Yeah, it opens you up to 
a very special part of society that I think that people who aren't touched by disability, they, they never get a look into. And you meet the most incredible people, the people with the biggest hearts, uh, with so, so much love to give to, to everyone around them and, and so much care. And it's been a community that, that we have loved to, to be involved in. And I think I have, I've learned so, so much uh, about what it, what it really means to struggle, right? And, and what the, the really important things in life are. And I, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a really an integral part of probably shaping who, who I am and, and who we are as a family. So you, Bronte, younger sister Jessica, younger brother Hamish, you're all born in Malawi, of course, and Abigail comes shortly after you move to Australia, of which you're nine years of age when the family packs up and decides to, to move here. Now, your mum, as I said, is pregnant with Abigail. This is not a small relocation. Uh, how did this come about exactly, Kate? So it was uh, essentially because of Abigail that we moved right, right when we did. So as I said, Hamish uh, had, was... Uh, had lots of complications at birth. And so it was kind of decided that it wasn't safe for, for mum to have another baby in, in Africa. And so it's funny because all of us kids are two years apart, except for Abigail, who's three years. So it's very easy to spot the little mistake in there. <laughs> how often do you... As we remind her a yes, lot. Yes, I was going to say, how often do you roll with that script in her presence? Oh, a lot. Come on. Oh, geez, I, know that, I know that we look like such a family that love each other, but we niggle each other oh, just as much as si- else. Siblings are ruthless, aren't they? <laughs> so ruthless. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a little bit of a surprise. And uh, my parents, because uh, future of, for life in Africa isn't super great, they had applied to, for, for visas to America and Australia, and Australia got back first. So... Positive pregnancy tests and Australia, here we come. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You're, this is your journey and it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, let's talk life in Australia with Kate Campbell right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with Olympic gold medalist Kate Campbell. So, Kate, you arrive in a new country and a very different way of life at nine years of age. The family settles in Brisbane. How daunting was this period for you? Can you take us back to this point in your life? Hmm. It's funny, one of my earliest memories of Australia was, was first how clean it was. Like there, were, there was no rubbish. All the roads had gutters. Like I, I, I don't know if I remember seeing a gutter before because in Africa they just kind of mishmash, put tar everywhere and it just kind of runs off into the dirt at the side of the, the road. And one of my clearest memories uh, when we first arrived in Australia was watching the rubbish truck empty the rubbish bins. I had never seen anything like it. You know, it came with this little arm and it reached out and it grabbed the bin and then it lifted it up and and all the bins were beautifully laid out and it would drive and collect it. Uh, and it kind of became, and I know that this, we sound so strange and we were a little bit strange. There was a bit of a culture shock when we arrived, but uh, all of us kids would wake up at, you know, 6am on Monday morning because where we were living, Monday morning was rubbish bin collection wow. and we'd sit and we'd wait by the window and watch as it came down the street emptying <laughs> the rubbish bins because we just thought it was the most amazing thing we'd ever seen. Um, I've, I've since progressed. I, 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 I no say, longer wake up at 6am for the rubbish truck. It's not still part of the routine? Okay. <laughs> not part of the routine anymore. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, was a, it, was, it was a big culture shock and I would uh, be attending school for the first time the, the following year, which I had never done before because I was – uh, I was homeschooled before then, and and that probably was my biggest source of anxiety was having to to go to school and be in a school environment which yeah. I hadn't 
in before. But yeah. uh, but before we did that, we made sure that we tried to connect as much as possible with uh, the local Australian community and culture. And what better way to do that than through sport? Oh, so indeed. We went down to our local swim club. Great segue and- by you. And hey, it was here. Isn't it fate? I mean, you must go back and think sliding doors. As fate would have it, you you meet a carpenter turned cowboy by the name of Simon Cusack. Now. He had swimming in the blood, of course, but he'd only just caught the coaching bug, bug when you and Bronte show up at, at the pool. Although, as you once described yourselves as the, the, the skinny African chicks. Oh, my gosh. I look back at photos of, of us and we look malnourished. And it's just because we spent the whole time just running around outside. We were yep. skinny. We were scrawny. Also, in Africa, there is this uh, perception that more colors is better. So everyone just runs around looking like a rainbow's vomited all over them, which was the style of clothing that we arrived with. So so we were these tall, skinny, um, very brightly colored African little girls with very strong African accents, which I very, very quickly tried to get rid of. And I, I now pretty much sound Australian, except if I've had a few too many drinks, the, the South African accent does come out a little Is bit. That right? It's very deep down inside. Wow, we. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we 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 just we just wandered wandered in, and yeah, he's he's been my my coach for the past twenty years. Is in in kind of a beautiful symmetry. We met him on the twenty fifth of July, two thousand and one. And the 25th of July, 2021, was the morning that we raced the final of the women's 4x100 freestyle relay team that won gold and broke a world record over in Tokyo. It was 20 years to the day. We I said, mean, there's, there's just something so poetic about that. We said it was fate, didn't we? And yeah. you've only had the phrase sibling rivalry thrown your way about oh, 6.2 million times over the course of your career. But I wanted to clear one thing up. Now, when you're starting off here uh, in Brisbane – did Bronte shine first? I mean, I was going back and having a look at your first swimming carnival here in Australia, and she may have done quite well. Is it true that you, in fact, stole her medal hall and, and hid it under your bed? Not, not the most original hiding spot, but I guess this is this is sibling rivalry manifesting itself at that age, which is obviously completely normal and replicated a million times across the country. Oh, yes, yes. Bronte won four medals in an A championship trophy at our first swimming carnival, and I won a little bronze medal. Now, I wasn't unhappy with that until Bronte would wear all her medals around her neck at once. So you could hear her clinking around the house. Like you just knew where she was because all her medals would be clinking together. I only had one. I didn't clink at all. I was feeling very upset by this. Uh, And then she would bring, um, and I'm not, without a word of a lie, she would bring her trophy to the dinner table. Like it had to sit next to her glass of water at dinner. She was just that proud of it. And good on her. She had worked very hard for that. She was like the most motivated little kid you've ever seen. If you looked up a dedication in the dictionary, it would just have seven-year-old Bronte as the definition. Uh, And I was not. I like to say, and I, I still am, I'm just quite a lazy person. My nature is to procrastinate. Um, I've, I've obviously worked quite hard at overcoming it, but it does still come out at, at times. And, yeah, I, I, I snapped and I stole her medals and her trophy and I hid them under my bed and uh, there was lots of tears on Bronte's end, lots of shouting from mum's end and they were <laughs> discovered. And then she kind of sat me down and she said, Kate, look, like, Bronte won those because she worked really hard and I've seen how much you train and and you don't work that hard. So if, if you do want what Bronte has, like you're going to have to work hard. Bronte did also get a little sit down and was like, honey, you, you, you need to be a little bit more humble. Um, but pretty much from then on, I was like, well, I want to clink. Yeah. Like I want that. <laughs> so poor Bronte, she, she, uh, um, made one of her biggest rivals because, yeah, we've been going toe-to-toe pretty much since then. Yeah, and I was going to ask, as you mature, obviously, and you grow into an adult, I mean, I don't know if it's too simplistic to, to raise this, but, you know, with that as the backdrop to your upbringing, I mean, is this the what almost lit the fire for Kate Campbell and your own dreams and the dedication demanded to get there? Because, you know, for you and for her, of course, you, you've got a world-class athlete and a world-class training partner under the same roof. I mean, what a resource for advice, for knowledge, for motivation, for competition, even for just talking about things that only you two can talk about. It's so unique. 
It is. It is incredibly unique. And I think that when when we look back at, at the start of, of people's journeys, we we often think that they have done have things that, that we don't have or they're inherently different to us in some way. And I'm here to tell you that my Olympic journey started on spite because I just couldn't handle being beaten by my younger sister. And I know that that sounds very simplistic, but it is simple. Sometimes things are that simple. But I like to think that I wouldn't be the athlete or the person I am if I didn't have Bronte right next to me every step of the way. And, and, and I like to think that that's true for her as well. And I think that together, uh, along with, with our coach, Simon, we have really helped progress sprint freestyle in this country you know we have an incredibly strong and successful women's freestyle sprint program and we've kind of pushed it and and it's it's a legacy that I've been handed down because you know I I took over from the likes of Jodie Henry and Libby Trickett and and Alice Mills and and, and real giants of our sport and now it's fallen to us and and soon or at some point we'll, we'll hand that baton on but yeah, it's it, it's it's one of those things that is incredibly unique. It's it's not without its challenges. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that you know we we do look incredibly close, and and we are. But it's something that we've really had to work on. It it, it hasn't come come easily all the time. And I think that we prioritized our relationship a, a, above sport which can be very, very difficult for very competitive people to do. Well, because it wasn't supposed to be this way, was it? You weren't even supposed to be racing against each other. You're supposed to be doing breaststroke and your sister's supposed to be a medley swimmer. So what happened here where you couldn't be kept apart? Well, yes, I I was supposed to be breaststroker. And then I actually, I tore my hip cartilage when I was nine years old um, playing handball. As you do. As, as you do, I was, I'm clearly a, a, a pure-blooded swimmer, right? I, I can't do anything else. Uh, so that kind of the, the breaststroke kick was out. I, I pretty much haven't done, done any breaststrokes since, since then because, um, yeah, it's just not great for, for my hips even still. So I then transitioned to freestyle. And at this stage, Bronte was still, you know, doing IM or backstroke. And I feel like I'd now picked up what I wanted to do. I was, you know, set on this freestyle thing. She should have picked something else. But lo and behold, she just kind of like weaseled her way in. Um, she just stopped improving in backstroke. So being brunchy, she just flipped over and uh, started doing freestyle. And then, yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> well, a big part of that history is Beijing 2008. I mean, you are the wonder kid. 15 years of age, you snare bronze in the 50-metre free. Britta Stefan wins. But the American Dara Torres is on the podium alongside you. Now, she's wearing silver. She's a quarter of a century your senior. Does that dawn on a 15-year-old in that moment? Oh, look, I don't think much dawns on a 15-year-old. <laughs> uh when I was 15, I thought I knew everything. Now that I'm nearly 30, I've realised that I know nothing. But I think that's just part of growing up, right? Uh, and, yes, I, I was at my first Olympics and, and, yes, it was this dream. But I don't think that I had really overcome enough struggles for me to fully appreciate what this moment meant. Uh, I, I don't think that, I, you know, I, each Olympics that I go to, I appreciate it more because yeah. I've had overcome a, a lot more uh and so i was you know uh excited to be able to go and compete or uh you know i'd, I'd written school assignments on some of my teammates literally the year before you know i'd been fangirling over them and then i was like oh my gosh now i'm on teams with them yeah. so yeah it was um it was a, a very surreal experience but probably it's probably a, an olympics it's probably one that I don't remember that well um, just because it was it was so much to take in. But you would gain that perspective soon, whether you'd like it or not. You're certainly no stranger to setbacks. I mean, and Bronte too. I mean, so after Beijing, you go missing in 2010 and 2011 with, uh, you know, a mystery illness, which is later diagnosed as glandular fever and, and post-viral fatigue. Now, I don't think you'd ever considered retirement, but is it overstating things to say that at, at, at just 20, it was really threatening your career? I mean, there were a lot of dead ends here when it came to remedies and solutions and you missed out on the Com Games in Delhi, 2011 Worlds in Shanghai. I mean, your level of um, frustration at this point, and, and were you ever at a complete loss as to whether you'd actually be able to turn it all around? I think it was 
it was so hard because I saw such a bright future for myself. And then once something happens to impede that, you have to readjust your hopes. And I think that everyone's kind of gotten used to that in, in the past 18 months. I think so many of us have seen uh, this future for ourselves and, and then it's been completely taken away. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, creativity during that time because my goal didn't didn't change. I knew that I wanted to, to get back, but I knew that I have to go about it a different way. So I, I learned a lot about creativity and a lot about collaborating with people who are really good at what they do and going and seeking and asking advice. Swimming is usually quite an individual sport. You rely completely on yourself and it's you who stand out uh, behind the blocks and you wear the result. But in the background, I learned very much during that time that it's really important to build a really strong team around you and that you are only going to be as good as that team is mm. there to support you and bolster your knowledge with their expertise. So you get back for London 2012, which is a big one, of course. Now, gee whiz, if ever there was a Games where it was the ecstasy followed by the agony, literally. So gold in the 4 by 100 meter relay. And then days later, of all things, you wake up with excruciating stomach pains and cramps. Now, I think you're rooming with Bronte at the time, and, and just as well, because she goes above and beyond here. So you go and get pancreatitis. Yeah, pancreatitis that usually affects middle-aged, overweight male alcoholics. <laughs> I'm clearly in the high-risk category for that. <laughs> Unbelievable. So you missed the 100-metre free and obviously, you know, the 50-metre free, you're not at your best, you're eliminated in the semis. I mean, oh, what? this is just – and then you go and break your hand on poolside, don't you, that year when you're, you're celebrating the end of the meet. You just couldn't take a trick. Just couldn't catch a break that time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very strange uh, how quickly – life can turn on a dime. I, I came back from, from that games uh, with my hand in a cast because I'd, I got uh, accidentally knocked over on, on pool deck um, and fell into some camera tracks and then um, got back to, to Australia and, and my brother uh, was in some very, very severe uh, health crises. Mm. You know, he was in, in intensive care that, that we found out um, on the night of the closing ceremony. So, um, I it very quickly put things into perspective because I, I was understandably pretty devastated and, and disappointed with the performance or not being able to, to perform really well in, in London due, due to this illness, but th there is still disappointment associated with that. But then I very quickly had to reorient and my priorities completely shifted and it, I just put it behind and me and, and, and focused on what was really important and that was being there uh, for my family. We're talking to swimming superstar Kate Campbell on This Is Your Journey, and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be right back with Kate after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, and a great pleasure to have Kate Campbell as our guest today. So, Kate, the, the R word, Rio 2016. Now, there's a gold medal in world record time in the 4 by one free, of course, and then a silver as a member of the 4 by one medley. But you arrive in Brazil as the newly minted world record holder, of course, in the 100 metre and the favourite in the event. Now, you're in front at the turn in the final. You fade to finish sixth. Even now, can you take us there in that moment? How, how raw is it for you now in the five years since? I mean, can words describe how crushing it was at the time? Yeah, I think like I said earlier, these really emotional and traumatic events, they they stick with us, right? And so every time I, I speak about it, I, I still feel that that little tug or that little emotional pull that still sits there. Uh, but I've, I've learned that it sits there uh, because it's meant something to me, right? It, it was it was a really pivotal thing, and and I think that that's a good thing. I I, I do want to do things that I care about, uh, but it's also there for for me to learn lessons from. Um, and, and every time I, I go back and I talk about it and I revisit it, I learn something else, and 
I, I've learned to to carry it with me, I suppose, and and to use it to mm. to my advantage. And um, when when I I look back on on that race, it's it's really interesting. We we. I don't usually talk about regrets in life because I'm not sure that I really believe in them. But if I could go back and change the outcome to, to that race, of, of course I would, right? Of course I would go back and I would execute uh, a race that I was really happy and, and, and proud of and, and something that I really want to be associated with, with my name. I think that was one of the hardest things that I found after Rio was, I was just like, this, this result is going to be tied to my name forever. Mm. Whenever you Google me, it is going to come up with this kind of news article saying that I failed, that I choked, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not worthy. And I'm going to be tied to this story forever. And it's since then that, that I've realized that, that we get to decide what story we create and what story we tell ourselves and, and what story we project to other people, right? Um, it, it's just difficult when uh, that is really public and, and you feel like the public is, is getting something different to, to what you want to tell them. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was an incredibly difficult and challenging time because I also felt like this one bad performance just completely negated the career that I'd had to that point, that all the other achievements that I'd done uh, or, or I'd managed to, to achieve up to then meant nothing, that they were all cancelled out by this one bad result, which, of course, just isn't true. But it's it, it was front and centre of everyone's mind and it was very hard for me to come back to Australia and, and go around and meet people and see people again uh, under probably what was a, a false illusion that that they saw me as a failure. Gee, we, we worship our sports stars in Australia, don't we? But gee, we can judge them harshly, and, and certainly there's a collective expectation on our swimmers as, as as much, if not more, than any other Olympic event. But gee, I think one thing that's often overlooked is that you guys are prepared to take the risk, you know, to put yourselves out there. In many ways, it would be so much easier to not be on the front line, but you are risking failure for the greatest success. And and there is real courage in that. I mean, this is the Olympic Games we're talking about. Yeah, and it's also once every four years, right? And as much as you can prepare and prepare and prepare, there is an element of luck, which you just have to accept. And I think that that's something that I've, I've really had to accept as well, that, um, you know, even if, if I do everything right, sometimes it's not going to result in, in a gold medal. Um, as, as we saw with Tokyo, I, I did ev- absolutely everything right and everything I could and, and, and it came out with a bronze. Um, and I think that I have really reevaluated the, the, the way that, that I view failure uh, in in the years since Rio, uh, and it, it's it's one of those really strange things because we don't like to talk about it, we don't like to engage with people, and it's very very steeped in in shame. But the only place where success is possible is also the place where failure is possible. So if you're not willing to put yourself in a position where you can fail, you're also not willing to put yourself in a position where you can succeed. And so I think that it's really important when we are talking about success that we do also talk about the flip side of failure because no one achieves something great without having failed multiple times. Uh, and and if we, we don't acknowledge that and, and we don't bring that to light, when someone is going out to do something really hard, to do something great, to to be the best at whatever they they want to be, they need to acknowledge uh, and and know that failure is a part of that journey and that it doesn't make them a failure, uh, but also the people around them are going to love and support them and help them get through no matter what. Gee, big kudos to you, though, for putting it. I mean, you put yourself out there in the first place for the event, of course, as we said, but then you put yourself out there in the form of an open letter in the aftermath, and that was as open and honest and as raw an open letter as I think most of us can ever recall. You actually termed it, I think, as the greatest choke in, in Olympic history. What led to you, the motivation to do this? Was it a cathartic experience? And looking back on it now, are you happy you did that? 
Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So I I really enjoy writing a lot. I think that it, it sometimes helps me get the thoughts out of my head and, and they can be on the paper so they don't have to live in my head. Mm. So I particularly in the aftermath of Rio, I, I did a lot of time writing down a, a lot of notes and a lot of thoughts and just pulling things out of my head so, so that um, I could get them out and feel like I had a little bit more space. And then I uh, would have maybe might have even been a year later or a couple of months later, um, a, a friend of mine contacted me and he said, oh, hey, uh, we, we, we've got this platform where athletes can, can say whatever they want, just wondering if, if you had anything you wanted to say. And I literally hadn't ever thought about pull, pulling all those thoughts together, but I just sat down one night behind a computer and just wrote. And, and it, just, it just happened all in, in one go. Pulled out of it. And, and I'm not even sure what I thought about sharing it. it it was more that that someone had asked me to do something and I was like oh yeah sure I can do that but I think the the aftermath was really wonderful I had so many people contact me and say uh, you know I, I hope you're okay and 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 this isn't how we saw you or, or thank you for talking about this because we don't talk about it in society enough so uh yeah it was it was a little bit of a cathartic experience for for writing it for me but I didn't expect it to resonate with people as much as it did. Oh, it certainly did. And look, I don't want to simplify things too much, but for all the acceptance and learning to overcome it in the years since, did do you in any way think your journey needed Tokyo to be complete in the individual sense? So not not your best ever swim, but perhaps the one that might have meant the most? Yeah. Uh, look, I think that going into Tokyo, I was really happy with the things that I had achieved so far, yeah. which meant that I didn't feel like I needed mm. this um, win or the this moment of atonement. And I think that that's something that's, you know, I don't perform really well if I feel like I, I need it, if it's really integral to who I am. I feel like I perform really well when I am really sure and calm and still and I act from that place as opposed to acting from from a place of, of desire and heat and passion. And, and, and everyone works slightly differently, right? You know, everyone needs different motivations and it's about finding out where you perform at your best. And I think that in the years since Rio, I have found this space where I know I can perform at my best. I know I can consistently perform at my best. I know how to get myself in and out of that state. So it, it wasn't that I felt like I, I needed it. It was something that I wanted to do. And that was a, a big difference for me because in part of my anxiety after Rio was I felt like I needed to atone for it. I felt like I needed to prove to people that I could perform, that I could be counted on, that I wasn't a failure. But heading into Tokyo, I wanted to show the world that I was still around, that I was still willing to put myself out there. And, and that's a very different mindset to stand behind the blocks in. Kate, good on you. Thanks so much for donating your time today. I mean, what a fascinating life you've had to the here and now. And, and yours is certainly a career to be immensely proud of. So regardless of what decision you make regarding Paris 2024 and whether pencil becomes pen or it gets erased, you have broken at the end of the day world records. You've been a world champion. You have four Olympic gold medals, and that is amazing. And the adversity and the disappointment along the way has no doubt made you stronger. So well done on all you achieved, and, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.